and say, aha, yeah. you can see that an AQL turned into an MQL, turned into a TQL, turned into an SQL, whatever, <laughs> you know, a set of letters. Hello and welcome to episode 58 of Rockstar CMO FM. The M is for marketing and the F is for value you decide. As you're probably wondering, does the world need another effing marketing podcast? I'm your host, Ian Truscott, and this podcast serves as my excuse to chat with marketing friends, old and new, that I've met through my B2B marketing career, and hopefully share some marketing street knowledge along the way. Come say hello on Rockstar CMO or Ian Truscott on LinkedIn and Twitter, and you can find all our links, guests, previous episodes, and the show notes on rockstarcmo.fm. This episode was recorded on Friday the 16th of April in the UK. We're finally allowed to sit outside the pub and I hope you've had a good week and that you are well, safe and staying the same as you feel you need to be. In today's show, Jeff Clark returns and we continue to discuss privacy. I meet Julie Ogilvy, a Forrester alumna with a fascinating view of our obsession with data. And I again get transported away in the Rockstar CMO virtual bar and join Robert Rose for a chat and a cocktail. Right, let's get started, shall we? On to our first segment, I'm again joined by Jeff Clark, Rockstar CMO Advisor and former Research Director for CEO's Decisions and Forrester. As we continue to discuss privacy, the marketer's dilemma. Welcome back, Jeff. How are you doing, mate? I am doing very well. We're getting some nice spring showers here in uh, eastern uh, central Massachusetts. Nice. And here in the UK... I am going to go for my first alfresco meal and drink as we're easing ourselves out of lockdown. It's not quite warm enough to do it, but hey, we're British. What the, what the heck? What <laughs> yeah. the heck? The, if, the pub's, if the pub says it's okay and it's going to have a little trestle table outside, I'm ready. It must be ready to go. What are you going to, <laughs> what are you going to have? I don't know. I don't know what's the – I mean, I haven't been in a pub for months, and, I, and it's got to be something – I was thinking about this earlier. It's got to be something that is uniquely a pub experience. So it needs to be a hand pulled pint of something, I think, because yes. I can pour myself a can of something or a, or a glass of wine here. Um, so it would seem that wine would be a waste. So I think I'm going to have yeah. to find some some obscure ale in this pub that I'm going to and, and that, that it, you can only really drink if it's been pulled by somebody else. That's and, I, and, I th- and I think some greasy, hot, greasy food that'll just make you warm, fish and chips yeah. or yeah, yeah. steak and kidney pie or something like yeah, that. Absolutely. You've like... Got, yeah, you've got our cuisine down there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think, uh, yeah. well, to be honest with you, Jeff, I would be delighted if somebody else pours the drink. And somebody else brings and cooks the food. Awesome. <laughs> I've set a very low bar. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, we're carrying on with our um, Privacy, the Marcus Dilemma series that we've been talking about for the last, what was it, three weeks or so? Yep. Um, and then last week, uh, I think you were threatening to turn the tables on me because we were going to talk about the role that content plays in uh, in in building trust and privacy, I believe. Uh, and uh, so, um, so I've uh, in all of our you know extensive preparation for this conversation, <laughs> I think that's that's where we left it. So, am I right in that in saying you are right? 
You are right. You're right about everything except maybe extensive preparation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you don't need it, mate. You've got, you've, you know, it's, it's you all know. right there. <laughs> no, I think so. So I think the thing is that, you know, it's okay if we take a trip down the memory lane over the past couple episodes and people yeah. certainly, I, I, I certainly encourage people to go back to listen to the earlier episodes if we're somehow catching them, uh, catching with a topic. But, you know, it's like if we, as consumers, you know, we, we don't want advertisers following us around you. And we then, you know, a lot of people, at least according to some of the stats we were saying, a lot of people are, you know, browsing using private browsers and, and, you know, Google wants to get rid of third party cookies. And we were sort of saying, well, I don't know, maybe we don't, it's like, do we care? You know, I mean, there's, there's pros and cons, but, but as a consumer, Mm-hmm. So, and to me, it's like as a as a marketer, you always want to put yourself in the in the the shoes, the seat of the consumer, because they're the ones you're trying to get uh, their t- your attention, their attention. So, with all of that laid out, what is a marketer to do? And I think that's where we're kind of last last week we kind of intimated that that's where the content plays a really good role. So that's why I wanted to turn it to you as our uh, content guru. <laughs> it's very kind of you to call me a content guru. Um, <laughs> so where should we start on this, on this then? Um, so, uh, yeah, well, I think it's like, well, let's just, I mean, do you, I think one of the things you also uh, started talking about last week, which we wanted to punt to this week mm-hmm. was the idea of building trust. So absolutely, if you could absolutely just like to start with what your thoughts are on, well, you know, using I, content as a trust building tool. Yeah. Well, I mean, I did um, my, my extensive research for this is I was actually listening to another podcast um, by the BBC uh, Digital Planet. And this week they talked about um, they were talking about how your phone is chattering away all the time, you know, to either to Google or to Apple. Uh, and, um, you know, they had some listeners uh, um, uh, commenting that, you know, you shouldn't buy those phones and and all that kind of stuff. You're kind of buying into that environment. But really, the the, the other point they were making really was um, that these these brands we trust we trust one or the other more, right? Um, and, and so we're prob- probably on on balance. And there's probably some data out there that I sort of researched that people probably trust Apple more than they trust Google, right? Or they they certainly trust mm-hmm. Apple more than trust Facebook. Or correct. You know, so 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 through and and how have they how have they achieved that level of trust? And it's also another thing is, is that, yeah, we know that our smartphones are chatty and we know that things being tracked. And I'm, I happen to be in the Apple camp and I'm, I'm quite okay about that in certain scenarios, right? When I can see a quid pro quo, when it makes my life easier, when it, when it makes my life more convenient, you know, we, we as consumers are basically lazy. So there's quite a low bar. In <laughs> I think, so I think that, well, I think we also mentioned this last week. I think that then brand plays a huge role in this, right? Is that Correct. is yeah. that in order to break through with your cheap, easy rubbish, <laughs> sorry, with your marketing automation and all that kind of remarketing stuff, is that you need to do that from a basis of trust. And I think, and I think that also, I think you mentioned this uh, last week or the week before, is the the digital and remarketing and social are not the only channels. And so, I think you need to look more broadly about what your story is, how you're going to tell that story, how you're going to tell it in a relevant way, and that privacy and trust needs to be a part of every brand story right now, right? Because that's and not just 
and not just um you know because it's in the zeitgeist and people should jump on that bandwagon but they have to they have to develop trust as part of their marketing strategy as part of their storytelling strategy mm-hmm. so, so i think that's where content yep. plays a role yep so one of the metaphors we used uh over the last couple uh, episodes was the idea of the store. You know, it's like, yeah. it, it's like you're, things are different when you're out on the sidewalk and you're yeah. thinking about what, you know, what you may want to purchase. Yeah. And then as soon as you say, okay, I want to walk into the, the Apple store or yeah. the electronic store or the pastry shop or, or the pub, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's like, yeah. so, so there's the, there there's there's a there's a definite difference between once i've gotten into the storefront and when i'm outside mm-hmm. or once i got into the store and not when i'm outside so how do you see so brand obviously is 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 part of just having your name out there and associated with some quality that would make somebody say you know i'm going to walk into the apple store as opposed to the generic electronic mm-hmm. store to see what's in there um but what from a from a content perspective, what do you think are some of the key you know rules to live by in terms of what we need to put out there in order to get people to walk into the store? Well, from a um, yeah, I mean, just in general, um, we could do a whole show about um, the value of um, content marketing in terms of brand building and building and um appealing to the emotional side of of making a purchasing decision i mean obviously my experience is more about people walking into a store and buying enterprise software solutions not so much <laughs> buying an iphone or a cake i'll go um, down the sap aisle this <laughs> <laughs> i'll have three of those they're on special offer um so um so uh, and so when we when we talk you know the, the the walk into the store in that environment is a long walk and it involves a crowd of people and um and and that and the you know the the way that you market to them is is very different than just trying to lure somebody in with golf sale signs standing in the street. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Come in, come in here. Um, so I think that. Um, but I th- I think specifically on this topic about privacy is I think that you kind of you you walk you need to walk the walk and then you need to and and talk the talk around this stuff because. If you remember, was it two weeks ago we were talking about GDPR, right? And we were, yeah. t- and I, I was saying that I was receiving uh, emails, unsolicited emails, that were offering me GDPR services. Now those emails themselves were not GDPR compliant, which was hilarious. <laughs> and at the time, I was working for a German software company, and knowing full well that we, that um, we were fully GDPR compliant, uh, they hadn't done any research, but it's and that, that's a really obvious example but that's the sort of thing that, that i think we need to do and i think we need to recognize that when we do things like remarketing and when we do retargeting and, and if we let the machines take over that relationship that we're actually damaging our brand with this sort of chinese water torture drip 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 you yes. know that yeah. we don't we don't care about the 97.5 percent of people who aren't going to respond to this retargeting ad because we're looking at the I've got to do my maths in my head because I just roughly the two and a half percent of people that, are, and I think if you've got a two and a half percent return on your retargeting, you're probably doing really well. But, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, 
it's thinking about that. It's not just thinking about the content and the story, but if you're going to put a story out there and you're going to talk about your, uh, let's say it's the origin story of your company and you're trying to appeal to their human emotions about how, why your CEO set up the company and all that kind of stuff. And then you start following people around the internet with that bloody thing. They're, going to, <laughs> they're not, they're not going to view you in that same human uh, emotional way, are they? Yeah. Yeah, I and, don't know if that's what you were looking for from that yeah, response, but that's yeah. And, and well, one of the other things which may go a little bit deeper to this is that you know uh, I've often have thought, and maybe may have said in the show that the the you know what the marketer needs to do is to is since the the prospective buyer out there is trying to solve a problem, is you need to help them yeah. in 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 learning and the problem solving, and of course, you, know, you and I have been involved in you know, thought leadership campaigns or, yeah. you know, or, you know, uh, surveys and studies, which are trying to like put together, you know, reasonably accurate, yeah. <laughs> although maybe self-promotional reports that, but to help yeah. people through a, a purchasing process. Yeah. Um, although so often I hear people say, you know, we need a thought leadership campaign and, and it's, and, and it's, I don't know, it, it, it's more about chess thumping than it is about yeah. helping people with the process they're going through. So I, I don't yeah. know what, where, where where do you what what are no, your I thoughts on that? that? I, I I agree completely, and I think that um, when we talk about thought leadership, it, it's got to be it's got to be it's got it's got to be thought leadership. It can't be the current view repurposed from one of your executives into you know into that. Um, and I also think that we as marketers we ha- we do a lot of research, right? Um, uh, or we should. I mean, if if you don't, then what the hell are you doing? But we have, I mean, one of the things that you can't accuse marketers of anymore is not having the data, is not doing the research, not doing. And right. I think that sometimes we're a little bit shy in sharing that, and that we share it for our own means. Whereas I think we should be. Enti- I think with that kind of thing, you need to be super generous with the research that you found out. And so you might get, you might share a report that might be useful to one of your competitors about the state of the market and stuff. But by you publishing that report, you've demonstrated a level of confidence and leadership in that, in that category. And it doesn't really matter if somebody picks that up and then repurposes. In fact, it's probably good for everybody if somebody does. So I, I so to your original, I think that, um, I think absolutely. I think um, sharing research and 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 the thought leadership. If you're going to say something, you know, every most consumers believe this. Then you better have the data, you know, and you better yeah. support that, and you better share that, and you better be uh, and also be very generous with where you've got the data from and who's contributed that, and you know, build you know, building that sort of community around around your category, really. Yeah. One of the things I remember from the buyer studies that we used to do, or I, I mean, I used to be involved in when we did them back at that Forrester Serious Decisions, is that mm-hmm. is that oftentimes um, the person who out there is trying to solve a business problem, they're they're looking to the vendors to understand whether the problem they're trying to solve is actually solvable. I mean, particularly, mm. I guess, as yeah. a technology vendor, is it solvable yeah. by technology or? Yeah. Or, you know, if, or should I be going to, you know, uh, an Accenture or somebody who's going to help me build new business processes and then maybe some technology that floats yeah. in there. But it's like the, um, so, 
So, you know, oftentimes, it, 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 which, which makes it difficult, like if you sit yourself in a category, you know, like web content management system, and it's like, well, okay, now I can go to a report and look at all of the vendors. Yeah. But is that really the problem I'm trying to solve? So, so it's... Mm. It, it, Absolutely. It, Absolutely. It, and I also think that um, I don't know that people really do that, um, that, they, that, they, that they suddenly realize they've got a problem and go to a list. They, they've... they've um, you know, they have a point of view of the market and that point of view is being formed by the brand building you're doing, but also building, coming back to, um, the topic, you know, the, the privacy thing is, I think that if you're generous in sharing useful things, then people feel the urge. I think it's an, I think it's documented psychology is that people feel the urge to reciprocate, you know, so yeah. I've given you a gift. You feel like you want to give me something back. Now, that thing given back may be trust. It might be data. It might be I'll fill in your survey for you. I'll give you this piece of me. I'll sign up with my email address into your thing and you'll contact me and sell to me. And so I think that by by sharing useful stuff that's genuinely useful, <laughs> like data, <laughs> like research, um, that's going to help somebody make their business case or solve their problem, is you're likely to get that reciprocated by people actually sharing their data with you. Yeah, good. So so you, given that we're involved in this thing called Rockstar CMO Advisors, mm. yeah. what would you advise the CMO who, you know, is you know, they're pushing for revenue contribution. They're pushing, you know, and people and the, the rest of the companies push them for contribution. They're pushing them for engagement with clients and prospects. But you've got to play an active role as a CMO in, in ensuring that your marketing team is doing that trust building mm-hmm. work. Well, that's incredibly difficult. And the interesting thing is, is in on the show, on this very show, I'm going to be talking to one of your former colleagues, Julie. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and actually, she touches a little bit on this. And the, the, and, and, but from my perspective there is uh, we're addicted to the things that are easy to measure. And that's also what we're going to talk about with Julie. And, that, and though some of those things are the things that butt up against this privacy issue, right? Is this retargeting and stuff like that? Because we can measure it and we know what those things are. Whereas the more um, you, you know, some of the other brand work you might try to do to build trust is hard to measure. The, 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 the things and the absolute crux of this conversation, you, you'll see, and particularly, I mean, I'm talking B2B here and, and apologies for the B2B marketers in the audience. Mm-hmm. The crux of this is whether you gate something or not, right? In every organization I've worked in, there's always that decision about, are you generous and give away your content in the belief that somebody will come back? And that's very hard to measure. Or do you gate everything, risk losing 60, 70% of whoever it is that bounces through, and that data are completely made up, so I haven't got anything to base that on, um, for the form fills you're going to get. So therefore, you can track. Uh, and that form fill will be a Gmail address if <laughs> they're not interested <laughs> in talking to you anyway, right? So yeah. I think that isn't that, isn't that, isn't that also the point at which, um, you know, we're talking, I mean, we've been talking about privacy in terms of the um, implicit stuff that people are learning about us through our behavior because of cookies and stuff. But what about the, sorry, the implicit, what about the explicit stuff that we're actually going to tell somebody our data, right? Is building up to that point, isn't it? That somebody gives you their email address or they give you their contact details and stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yep. 
So that's, and, and sorry, and to your point about what advice would I give to a CMO, that's the conversation you need to have. And I think you need to have that conversation very early, maybe even, you know, during the interview about where the executive sees and feels about that stuff. Because, you know, there are um, executives that have this feeling that these are the metrics you're going to need to hit. And the trouble is, is when you're charged with doing that, you will hit those metrics or you will sort of fudge it a bit yeah. and you'll make those metrics. But right. is that actually going to deliver growth for the business or awareness or trust? Um, you know, that's the sort of conversation I think. I mean, but I mean, you've got way more experience advising CMOs than I have. Well, 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 it's it's your view. well it, 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 to be CMOs in the business I've been, have been so much under pressure for this. I mean, just yeah. as you said, they're under pressure for specific things. And yeah. it's, it's in in the interview process, it's going to be very difficult to say, yes, I can I can hit that revenue contribution number, but I can promise you I'm not going to violate the trust of any of our prospects and customers. <laughs> and, and the CEO might go, well, that's a nice answer, but <laughs> so it's a- I didn't I didn't mean it like that, but you get a flavor, you can get the flavor, can't you, of and and also um th- there's an education to be done, right? Is it, it you know, if I, I believe that marketing's role is to is to build awareness, revenue, and trust, right? Correct. And the and mm-hmm. I only say it in that order because it makes a nice acronym, which is art, right? Revenue is the top one, right? And the, the, the and I think that's why CMOs have a short tenure and they're replaced by chief growth officers and stuff like that. It's because you've got to know how to talk to the other executives on the board and make sure that you're appealing to them. But when it comes to some of these other metrics about awareness and trust, you've got to start owning that conversation and you need to make sure that they are, that those, those objectives that you have, those um, those targets you have around awareness and trust also ladder up to revenue, right? That you can right. demonstrate. And the, the, the problem with some of those things is awareness and trust is a slow burn. Somebody's not going to trust you tomorrow. They're not going to be aware of you tomorrow. So you need that runway <laughs> while you're still delivering revenue. To deliver right. Yeah, but, but it's really about long-term growth as opposed yeah. to, you know, suppose I'm going to try to hit, you know, a, a, yeah. a big number, you know, it's 20, 30, 40% growth yeah. today. And then yeah. tomorrow, I don't care. I mean, because yeah. that, that's a flash and burn strategy. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should do a series about budget because often that stuff comes down to budget. Well, so that's it. <laughs> that, yeah. that, that'll, that'll lose listeners quickly <laughs> yeah. anyway what spreadsheet do you know <laughs> yeah, we want, yeah. anyway so I, thank you I, jeff um i'm gonna have to we're gonna have to call it quits there because we're up to up to the 20 minute mark that we usually uh, we I, usually stop on i i will I, i'll leave it to you about songs about trust there's oh, that's know, true. there's 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 trust in me at a james 1960 there's there's you know, I mean, there's some things around there, but I'll I'll leave this week. I'll leave the music selection up. Thank to you. you. I'm going to try and find something that's uh, I I didn't do my research before we chatted, and right. uh, usually you're on the decks, but I keep I keep arguing with you that we need something a bit newer. So I will find something a little bit newer than usual that's about trust and content. I'll try and think of that. But uh, okay, that's been excellent. So we'll see what we're going to play out on, and um, I will. Um, shall we continue with this next week, or should we start on another topic? Um, I think we need to talk about. I think we could we can continue on this next week. Yeah, all right. Then a little bit more privacy. The marketer's dilemma next week. I'll speak to you then. Cheers. Take care. Take care. Trust. Who do you? Trust. What makes you real? Love the trust. I put this. Back.
Thank you, Jeff. We continued to decide what the track was uh, after I finished the recording, and I've gone with one of his suggestions, Trust by Prince. Not his most well-known track. It's from the Batman movie soundtrack, but certainly fits our conversation. I'll, of course, include links to Jeff in the show notes. I would also recommend seeking his advice. On to my guest interview, Julie Ogilvy's career in marketing has spanned three decades and innumerable business trends and transformations. She's an unapologetic journalist, having worked in communications, brands, events, content and digital marketing roles in both B2B and consumer businesses. She was part of the marketing team that launched the wildly popular iOmega Zip Drive in the mid-90s, spent eight years as the VP of corporate marketing for e-learning leader Skillsoft and finished her career as a VP principal analyst for Forrester Research. Research. As you'll hear today, Julie is exploring a variety of creative projects in so-called retirement. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello, Julie. Welcome to Rockstar CMO FM. How are you? I'm fine, and thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. It's an absolute pleasure. A, a, a Forrester alumna from um, that you introduced to me through Jeff, who's also on the show. Um, but tell for the listeners that don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes. So um, my career is um, I spent basically my whole career in marketing and that's over 30 years. And so I just to sort of put it into perspective, I like to tell people that when I started uh, cut and paste really meant cut and paste like <laughs> scissors or knife and then using glue. It wasn't like a keyboard shortcut yeah. or anything. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've been through quite a variety of roles. And I, I would say the one thing that's sort of a thread that's run through my career is writing. Almost mm -hmm. every job I've done, writing has been uh, an important component of it. Right. And it's sort of a piece of advice that I would give to any person who, especially young people who are thinking about getting into marketing. If you can write, that means you can go into a company very early on and mm -hmm. you can contribute and add value. It's the thing that nobody else wants to do. So <laughs> if you can do it and do it well, it's really going to be very helpful in and it and it, it also translates across all different types yeah. of industries. So I, my first job, I was called uh, marketing coordinator, and I worked for a company that made plastic bottle caps. So you know, very glamorous position. Wow! And I moved on to a company that sold bows and arrows. Mm -hmm. Well, the same types of skills are used to develop, you know, your content, whether it's yeah. bottle caps, bows and arrows. Um, you know, whatever you do in your career. So um, that's sort of the thing that run through everything. And I went from being also a generalist, you know, moving mm -hmm. across different types of roles to managing teams of people doing it. And um, that also set me up for, in the end, going to work at a place like Forrester, where having yeah. knowledge across a lot of areas was helpful. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and uh, gosh, what an introduction. I mean, there's like three different things in there that I'm really interested in. And one of them is that clearly content marketing isn't new <laughs> right <laughs> and, and and the and also that idea that um that you shouldn't be shy of writing if you're a marketer and and, and telling stories but we'll get onto that in a moment so you've um so you've recently re am i okay to say retired from forrester i know that you still are very active but recently retired from forrester what was your focus when you were when you were with them 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm not shy about saying I'm retired <laughs> with you. Like people hear that and they don't, it sort of almost like stops the conversation. They don't know what to really? talk about. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think retirement needs a rebranding. So it shouldn't, mm-hmm. you, know, you shouldn't be defining yourself based on what you don't do. You should define yourself on, you know, based on what you, you do do. So yeah, I'm yeah. doing a lot of creative projects that I never had the time to do across, you know, the 30 years of working for other people. Yeah. Um, when I was at Forrester, so I joined actually Serious Decisions, and um, which was later acquired by Forrester. And I had been a client of Serious Decisions, and I really appreciated that they brought this viewpoint and a lot of knowledge around B2B marketing. Yeah. And B2B is typically ignored in a lot of, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's just sort of the... The, the stepchild, it, it, it doesn't get the same amount of attention. Yeah. And um, so, but, but what I did there also was, was a little bit out of the mainstream for what mm-hmm. typical um, clients were at uh, serious decisions or Forrester in that I was talking to brand and uh, communications uh, leaders primarily. Mm-hmm. So that could be um, the leader of, you know, the VP of corporate communications or, or corporate marketing. Yeah. And, um, a lot of those, uh, people, they were having, um, questions around the area of, it could be something that was very, uh, brand focused. So like we're doing a, uh, a rebranding or we've yeah. acquired a company. How would we do that? Yeah. Um, it could be around what, what should we have for a quote unquote influencer strategy? Yeah. We talked a lot about messaging, um, you know, both corporate messaging and sort of product messaging. But I think the area that we got probably the greatest number of questions was always around brand measurement. Yeah. And by brand measurement, really what the clients were asking is, how do I prove the value of the brand and the reputation? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Really tricky thing to do. Yeah, no, that's right. And um, I missed, um, I also wanted to rewind back to the beginning of your career, actually. And um, what, and I asked most of my guests this, what actually inspired you into this crazy marketing? I mean, it's not that crazy, but what inspired you to be in marketing in the first place? Yeah. Well, I guess I, I could say I was born into it because my father had a small advertising and PR agency, and he then later also published a, like a weekly newspaper. Mm-hmm. So I actually grew up in a house where there was an advertising agency in the front parlor. <laughs> wow. <laughs> being named Ogilvy too. People yeah. would always say, Oh, Ogilvy and your father, you know, your father's yeah. in advertising. And I'd be like, no, not that yeah. Ogilvy. Right. Yeah. So, um, it's funny because I, I was joking when we came on and we were prepping and I said, Oh, you know, you come from a long line of marketers and it's true. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, yeah. I, I was, you know, when I was in college, when I started and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I yeah. thought I wanted to do something in, you know, in the visual arts or yeah. graphic arts. And, um, but I, I had, I didn't really connect with it. It didn't work yeah. for me. So I ended up, uh, then going into sort of more of this area of, of writing. Yeah. And, um, that's how I got started, but I wanted, I've always wanted to do something that was a little bit more um, yeah. creative. And so that's uh, how I got started. Yeah, no, that's, uh, yeah, I've sort of asked you things in the wrong order here because then we were back, <laughs> up, back to, back to Forrester again. And something that caught my eye um, 
uh, well, when did you write this? It was last year, wasn't it? And you were, you were t- we were talking about marketing data just a moment ago and the challenges that we all have there. And you wrote an article that the drunkard search. And I think mm-hmm. that was so that's quite appropriate for this particular podcast. So I thought I'd, I'd ask you, what did you mean by the drunkard search when it comes to marketing data? Yeah. So it was a concept that I had come across. Um, and it, it's, it's known to, some social scientists, and there's a sort of story behind this idea of the drunkard search. And the idea is that um, there's a, a man on the street and he's crawling around under a, a, a lamppost and he's sort of, and he happens to be drunk and he is crawling around, looking on the ground very closely. He's obviously looking for something. And a policeman comes along and he says, what are you doing there? Is there something I can help you with? And he says, I'm trying to find my keys. Mm -hmm. So the policeman gets down on the ground and crawls around with him. And then after a few minutes, he says, wait a minute, how do you know that you, you know, did you drop your keys under this link? Yeah. And the drunk guy says, no, I could have, you know, I walked two blocks from the the bar. I could have (laughs) dropped it anywhere. But it's dark over there and we can see here, this is where the light is. So this is where our search is going to be. And, you know, that is so true about the way that we, um, you know, we think about or, or what I see today in marketing in terms of, you know, we ask this question of how do we create value in marketing? It's much, much easier to just simply focus on the area where it's much more obvious because mm-hmm. there's some data that exists there and say, aha, yes. this is where the value came from because we can see that an AQL turned into an MQL, turned into a TQL, turned into an SQL, whatever <laughs> you know, set of letters you use. Yeah. Tracking that has become what people think marketing is about. And mm-hmm. I think that that is a problem. Right, right. So you think that we've become data obsessed then as, as marketers and, and with your career, right, from where, from where you've seen that come through, right, as uh, that, that, that shift. Right, right. And I think a lot of it is, is driven because, so, you know, let's go back. Um, when, whenever we think marketing automation really started, I think I was implementing my, I was an early implementer of Eloqua. So mm-hmm. back in like 2006, 2007, um, we were trying to get that, that process going. So I'm very much, I'm not trying to say that that isn't a value and that, you know, you yeah. wouldn't have that in a modern marketing organization. Certainly you should be able to measure that, that whole demand generation process. And the other thing of course, is then it has to connect to the measurement that you're doing of your sales process. That's another yeah. big problem. I'm sure you see all the time, which is, it doesn't matter if you do all this great measurement and it, then it falls apart because it's not connected into when you're yeah. crossing over into the sales process. But that is only one part of the marketing process. And right. so much of what marketing does or should be doing is creating the environment where you can be successful at that. Yeah. But it's not something that necessarily is you know, focused on that very short window of time when buyers are in a buying cycle, you yeah. know, and, and unfortunately it's, you know, uh, there isn't a, a magical device where we can look inside people's heads and know exactly <laughs> what they think. Right? Yeah. Or when they first heard of us or any of that attribution stuff, right. Is what, 
You know, right. how, how did we come top of the mind? How did we, how, how were we there at that very short point that you say where somebody actually yeah. comes and says, I'm interested in your stuff? I mean, that, that seed could have been sown in a meeting, in a conference right. six months ago. Or years ago. Yeah. You used a, a phrase, you used a metaphor in one of your previous podcasts, Ian, where you talked about growing a tree. Yeah. And, you know, Brandon reputation is very much like a tree that grows over a period of years, not yeah. even just a period of, yeah, you know, yeah. we think of a quarter as a long period of, time <laughs> yeah. of marketing nowadays. And yeah. the, the funny thing to me too, is like, if you were just to sit down with any CEO and say, well, is, is reputation important in terms of like yeah. what businesses we choose to do business with? They would say, well, of course, you know, yeah. I'm not, I wouldn't choose to do business with a company that I thought was shady yeah. or some fly by night company I had never heard of before. Yeah. And, um, oh, <laughs> hold on. Someone's knocking at my door. <laughs> okay. Can we stop for a second? Yeah, sure. I got to get this. <sighs> Sorry about that. That's all right. So you're okay. back. So. Okay. <laughs> so where were we? I, I think we were, what we were talking about is, you know, there's something that's really obvious about brand and yeah. reputation and that we can see that it's important to have a good reputation. Personally, you want to have a good reputation. You want to do business with companies with a good reputation. Yeah. But then when we get into this conversation about metrics and we start thinking about what's going to be in the dashboard and how do we prove the value of every single individual activity that we do, yeah. we get away from that truth that is so obvious, so glaringly obvious across all of marketing that you want to, you want to be a trusted, yes, you know, well-respected company. Yeah. Yeah. And that if, if you have that position, when, when buyers enter into a, a phase of buying, they're going to be much more likely yeah. to, you know, seek you out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in my own work, well, so when I'm consulting or when I was a CMO, I was talked about three things that marketing needs to achieve awareness, revenue, and trust. And I yeah. think that some, some marketers over index on any of either of those, right. Is that the MQLs of revenue sometimes or awareness where they do too much brand work, there's got to be a balance there. And most of it is about building trust, as you say, right. Cause nobody's going to do business with us unless we, unless we build that trust and that takes time. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I, I think happens is that when, you know, their confirmation bias is such mm. an important part of the way that humans make decisions. So yeah. we, you know, we think of it a lot of times I think as marketers, we, we think about a buyer and we say, well, this buyer is going to buy, he needs to buy some piece of some arcane piece of uh, enterprise software. <laughs> and like they go out and they have no preconceptions yeah. about what, yeah, yeah. what are the companies or what it is that they want yeah. uh, or what they need. And, and they go out there with this sort of idea that they're just going to, at the time that the person is making this decision, they're going to be able to go out and and just, you know, capture attention and through the power of their message, they're going to attract them. Whereas what really happens, I think in many cases is that people have some kind of preconceived notions around what types of solutions they need, what kind of companies are the leaders in that area. 
and they seek those companies out and they want to defend that decision to do it. And so very, that people get locked into their decision-making process much earlier than we think they do. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, the, I I often talk about the emotional, the emotion of B2B buying, right? That's often forgotten that actually there's so much risk involved in that decision. I love the way you just described it as a defense. Like you feel defensive about making the decision. You've, you've chosen your sweetheart almost maybe six months ago. Um, or a year ago, like you say, and, and you're going to defend that decision, right? Right. And, and that the process of B2B buying is, um, is complex and it's scary. And the people who are involved in making those decisions, I mean, especially if you're making some kind of a decision that involves, you know, again, like a big piece of enterprise software, that's going to really change the way everybody, you know, everybody does their expense reports or whatever it is. It's going to affect a lot of people. And so you're really under, uh, you're really in the spotlight when you do that. So there is, you know, we we're thinking of it sort of in a cut and dried way of here's what our features are, but the people who are involved in it, not only are they worried about, you know, how do I convince my um, colleagues that this is the right decision? They're, they're worried about, um, you know, uh, what if this goes terribly wrong? You know, yeah. have I ruined yeah. my career and that type of thing? So, yeah. you know, many B2B sales cycles end in no decision because often there's, there's too much risk, right? You yeah, nobody yeah. can make up their minds yeah, because yeah. they're so overwhelmed and there's so much anxiety around yeah. it. Yeah. But back to the sort of the original point that you were making about the measurement, right? So it's all, I mean, we say this, you know, we have this conversation a number of times, I think on the podcast and I have this conversation as well, but we do, but, because those things that you're talking about are actually harder to measure, right? So we're, we're in this sort of measurement. We're addicted to measurement. Um, right. So we measure the easy things. We measure the vanity metrics. And then if you say, well, you need to measure your level of brand trust. And it's like, oh, <laughs> that's right. so hard. <laughs> so right. Right. What advice do you give to, what advice or did you yeah. give to your clients when, when you were trying to say to them, look, Ease yourself off the uh, the sugar rush of vanity metrics. You're right. going to need to do some work and and, yeah. and and eat your spinach. What what is it that you used to uh, advise? Right. So I'm I am you know a lot of that blog post you're referring to yeah. is questioning some of the metrics of marketing. Yeah. But you know measurement is something that you should you should embrace if yeah. you're doing brand and reputation. The way that we looked at it at Serious Decisions and then Forrester was that there were three pieces to a to yeah. a brand, uh, brand measurement, which was, again, you said awareness. So yeah. how many people know us? Perception. Mm. You know, how do they feel about us? And yeah. what do they know about us specifically? Yeah. And then um, uh, their propensity to really engage with us or show preference for us, which is mm-hmm. the type of thing that is more easily measured through behavioral type metrics. Like mm-hmm. they're going to go to our website or they're going to come to our webinars when yeah. we advertise yeah. them, etc. But those first two, awareness and perception, are really the tricky ones. Yeah. And it's something that you have to you, there are proxy metrics that you can use for that. Yeah. So obviously the number of people who come to your website gives you somewhat of a rough idea of yeah. how many people in the world are aware of you. And if you track that over time and you see that going up, yeah. 
you know, you know that you're doing some things to increase awareness. Yeah. You can use social media monitoring tools to figure out if, are we being associated with the topics yeah. that we want to be associated with? Yeah. Um, and you can also get a rough sense of how people perceive you in terms of their positive, neutral, negative emotion. Yeah. Um, so there are things that you can do there. But a, a big area I would say that today in our, because we're obsessed with the automation metrics is a lot of companies have really stepped away from doing brand studies. Yeah. Um, and it used to be a sort of a pillar of marketing that you did an annual brand survey. Yeah. Um, and I would even say an, another really big missing formative piece is qualitative. Yeah. Um, qualitative research. So when I was working at some of those earlier companies like um, iOmega, um, which had a very, very successful brand with something called the Zip Drive, mm -hmm. um, that was born out of really good insights into the type of people who were buying that type of product, what mm -hmm. would appeal to them at an emotional level, what kinds of problems they were trying to solve. And a lot of that, again, doesn't come out of so much a scientific survey. It comes out of listening to people, doing mm -hmm. interviews, doing focus groups. And I think people look at that and they go, oh, well, that's, you know, that's, that's Old school. We yeah. don't, we, yeah. we don't need that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm realizing the time and I'm, I'm, I'm going to shamelessly overrun with what I normally do here. Cause it's so fascinating. Um, do you think the marketing automation has cheapened measurement in that way? So like, so so because there's this instant on, right, I can get some metrics really easily. I'm already paying for this tool. I can go through this stuff and it gives me an indication of something. But if I actually go out and try and do the the real research into, into brand and stuff, particularly, and I think we're particularly guilty of it, aren't we, in B2B rather than, I mean, big consumer brands will do this automatically anyway, right? Do you think yeah. that's what's happened here? How do we How do we move that needle back again? Yeah. I think, you know, what I saw as I was talking to people at Forrester, a lot of people in marketing are fighting for their lives. Yeah. Every day. They're yeah. fighting to keep their job. Yeah. And the way that they feel that they can do that is by saying, this tactic worked 29.7% better than that tactic, right? Yeah. And so they fall back into this, we're miserable, we're data-driven. Yeah. And they, they're not comfortable talking about the creative part yeah. of it. And um, so... Yeah. And it, the ironic yeah. part is by doing that, they have reduced the role of marketing yeah. to tracking, again, tracking MQLs and SQLs and all of yeah. these types of things. Um, so that's fascinating. Uh, I, I think that you have to be, you have to be able to have a conversation with your CEO yeah. around brand yeah. and reputation. And again, get them up to that higher level where they're thinking in a common sense way, of course it's yeah. important. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and think about this. Yeah. And uh, uh, right. I am honestly going to ask you the final question and um, <laughs> the, um, the, but is it because we're now getting our marketing confidence from those metrics? You know, it, it, because you said it, the, the words you were using just now, you didn't say confidence, but I was hearing confidence. I thought it sounds to me like marketers need a bit more confidence in the softer part and the brand building and the storytelling uh, that can't, well, point at it in HubSpot, Marketo or whatever. I can't right. do that. And, 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 right. and so they fall back and, and put all their efforts into what they can share. Right. I think, unfortunately, a lot of, for instance, CMOs, you look at the tenure of CMOs, you know, yes. 
Ooh, scary how short it is. And, you know, yeah. I think marketing is like the incredible shrinking profession yeah. because we have said we, people go in and into jobs and they sell themselves by saying, I'm going to give you yeah. 20.5% more, yeah. whatever you want. Yeah. And, but they don't, they're, they're, they have to over, you know, that's a, a vast oversimplification of the way the yeah. world works. There are yeah. so many things that we do not and are unable to measure. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's not that helpful. I, there's a, a great book out there. It's not a marketing book, but it's a good book for people to look at. It's called The Tyranny of Metrics. Mm-hmm. It's about all the different sort of fallacies. And this cross is not just, you know, it's not mm-hmm. just business, but it's in academics and it's in healthcare and everything mm-hmm. where, where this, this, this drive to be measurable ends up working against, mm-hmm. um, you know, the overall success of the organization. And you end up with, um, you know, people sort of manipulating data all the time yeah, to yeah. look better. Yeah. Um, you really have to step back a bit. And again, I'm, I'm an old school person, uh, unapologetic about it. I yeah. really think you have to say, what is it that really drives this audience? Who are they as people? What are their emotions? How do we connect into that? Yeah, that's, that's a great way to leave the formal part of the of the interview thank you very much julie i have one final question which i ask everybody on the on podcast and i'm delighted you, you've listened to it so you'll know what's coming um we call it the swim pool where we chuck all the snake oil or bs and overhyped techniques or trends from our wonderful industry what would you chuck in there well i mean we've spent a lot of time talking about marketing mm-hmm. automation stuff so i'll leave those guys alone <laughs> um, <laughs> they often but, get it on this show to be honest technology often gets it on this show i was like intent marketing is one yeah. of my least favorite phrases but the thing oh that is oh that that's gonna that one day somebody's gonna come up with that that's for sure that, that's uh, getting some hype at the moment but yeah. what, what's your one so the one that i um i drives me nuts is storytelling uh-huh now, it's, it may seem counter to everything I just said. Yeah. I believe in storytelling. I think you should tell a story that's interesting to people and yeah. touches their emotions. But it's taken on this idea that you can have like a template for storytelling or mm-hmm. that there's a workshop that you can buy and you'll bring your staff to it for six hours. And all of a sudden, yeah. they're going to be these magnificent storytellers, you know. Yeah. And again, you know it's all about writing and it's about how do you connect with audiences? How do you really understand them? And how do you make something that's interesting to people? And that's not, it's not an easy thing that you can learn in six hours, but you know, that's the big thing that's being sold right now. At least that's what I see. All right. So the commoditization or the, or the, or the view that, that storytelling can be taught in a, in a quick session, and can be formulaic and we can just roll it out is the thing that's going to swim for. Right. But right. Not, yes. But we like to tell stories. Is right. Like the dumbing down of what storytelling is yeah. to, you know, a listicle, you know, here's yeah, the yeah. Same things you can do to be a great storyteller. You know, um, <laughs> people want to know that people definitely want to know that. And people are really disappointed when you say, well, it's not that easy. Yeah. Yeah. Easy. Maybe that's the listicle we should create. <laughs> the seven reasons why it's just too hard. <laughs> we'll drive those clicks. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been an absolute delight, Julie. I'm, I'm a pleasure to meet you um, through through Jeff. So I'll think, thank him when I speak to him later. Um, and I know that you're 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 um, doing other things. I don't know whether whether I want to say retired. You, you you've moved on to other things. But if people um, spin the dial on the interwebs and they want to 
they want to connect with you or they want to, I, I will of course include a link to the blog post we've been talking about, but where would right. they find you, Judy? So actually, um, my husband and I, who's also a retired CMO, uh-huh. um, you can find us at chubbycouple.media. <laughs> That's we're fantastic. Up, yeah. <laughs> it's well, very memorable. A little, little lighter side of life. Um, nice. It's, we're just sort of getting started. We're not really there yet, but that's sort of where we're going to express our uh, – uh, unwanted opinions and um, talk about things we're interested in. And uh, of course, people can reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. Oh, that's excellent. Well, I'm sure people will, because that was absolutely delightful. Thank you very much, Julie. And I look forward to uh, staying in touch and, and speaking to you again. Thank you. It was great. Splendid. Thank you, Julie. Went a little longer there than I usually do, but I was enjoying very much our conversation and wanted to share all of that with you. I will, of course, include links to her LinkedIn profile, Twitter, and her new website in the show notes. Right. It's time to escape lockdown, take a trip to the Rockstar CMO virtual bar, and be transported away with a cocktail with my friend and content marketing guru, Robert Rose. Evening, Robert. What are you drinking? Ah, hello, my friend. It's nice to see you in the bar. You know, here is the thing. Tonight, I was lazy, um, <laughs> and uh, which is not uncommon for me, to be honest. Uh-huh. Um, but instead of making some big craft cocktail, um, I decided that we were going to open up another really nice bottle of wine. Um, and the reason I did that was because this pairs well with, you know, do you have uh, cheese doodles in the UK? The, 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 the Cheetos or the those yes. kinds of things? Yes, we do. But I hadn't thought of a wine pairing for them. Yeah, well, this is where <laughs> this is where this comes in, because uh-huh. this wine pairs lovely with cheese doodles. Um, <laughs> it's a 2014 called Orchia. Uh, Brunello di Montalcino. So we've had a Brunello on our yeah. uh, little uh, yeah. gatherings before. Um, yeah. But this one is just a very, very special one. A lovely way to start the weekend. Uh, and it pairs extraordinarily well with the cheese doodle. So that's what we're drinking tonight. <laughs> is there any particular reason why you're choosing cheese doodles this evening? Uh, well, because it's what I, it's what's on hand. Um, <laughs> from a snack pers- perspective. Um and okay. you know, I, I it was I was looking around and I was thinking to myself, you know, here's what's on hand snack wise. What would pair well with that? And so yeah. I went to the robust uh, wine cellar that is the Rose Wine Cellar, um, uh-huh. and uh, and found this lovely bottle of uh, right. of, of Col d'Orcia uh, and uh, the Brunello, and decided that would be perfect. Um, now it, it is, it is for, I will tell you this, it is also, you know, it, it is, it, it really, it makes me want to make dinner now because, oh, you know, yes. you don't just open a Brunello and say, <laughs> oh, let's just only have cheese doodles, right? You've got to have something <laughs> to go along with that. So at some point I might have to, 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 uh, migrate into a, a good bolognese or something like that to go nice. with it. But I'm just at, at this point, I got the doodles and I got the Brunello and I'm doing pretty good. 
Yeah, that sounds fine to me. I will um, talk to the virtual staff here at the virtual bar about the virtual snacks that we're virtually serving. So (laughs) (laughs) that helps. Okay, I'll try and replicate that uh, that culinary expert. What's the what's the word for culinary when it's drinkery? Well, I'll try and um, <laughs> replicate that. Yeah, uh, you can you replicate that. I mean, you might. It might take you some time with the grapes and all of that. But yeah, yeah. Well, you yeah. didn't put ice in yours, did you? So I just put some ice in my glass. And uh, this week, let me see what I have. Do I have a Brunello? Uh, what red? White, what red wine? No, I have some gin. Surprisingly enough, and this week, Robert, I know that you weren't feeling the Sipsmiths. I've I've gone to the Bombay Sapphire, which I know is one of your favorites. You favorite. have gone back to the Bombay Sapphire, which is 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 the wonderful, wonderful. Uh, which um, for you, which for yeah. you, I think, because I actually had to make you a virtual gin and tonic in our virtual bar virtually the other week, um, and um, unfortunately, you end up with the Sipsmith. So this week, you've got the nice red wine, and I'm. Um, I'm drinking the good stuff. So there you go. That's and fantastic. Also, I'm I'm going with. So if we think about the fruits and the fruitiness and the oakiness and all that loveliness that's in your red wine, I think I might find that in a cucumber fever tree tonic water. Oh well, yeah. I, I that's definitely not wine either. But I I think you should uh, feel <laughs> good sure about we'll that. Yeah, stick a bit of that into me, Jim lovely uh so uh, i think though if you're eating cheese doodles does a gin and tonic go with cheese doodles you know i have found that just about anything goes with cheese doodles but um i think you would be especially um <laughs> uh the here's the only thing about that though is that the wine glass tends to hide the you know the little crusties that you get when you handle the cheese doodles wine glass tends to hand that a little better than the icy sweaty glass of a gin and tonic but we seem to have given away the fact that uh this this finer tips these are the finer tips that you get on rockstar cmo this is absolutely yeah absolutely all the good stuff so i'm gonna give this drink a try robert hang on okay i've actually already tried it while you were talking but i'm gonna do it officially now Mmm. That's excellent. Thank you very much, Robert, for that suggestion. I could drink those every week. I, I, think. <laughs> I think that's probably a good idea. Yeah. And what, and it's consistency. Did... I mean, they, that's what they that's what they preach, right, is consistency. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, in the content marketing game, especially. And that's right. What, exactly. what are we calling this drink this week, Robert? We're calling it a Brunello di Montalcino is what we're, what we're calling it. We're calling it a glass of red wine. That sounds splendid. And we have our little bowl of, uh, of uh, cheese doodles. Uh, where are we consuming these fine gifts? Well, we, I mean, there is no other place than we can be in a, than other than the Amalfi Coast. I mean, we have to go oh, yes. to the Amalfi Coast, right? Have you seen the... The uh, cheese doodles the, there are to die for. The cheese doodles at the Amalfi <laughs> Coast are, yes, are, are outstanding for sure. Um, but have you seen the... Uh, the um, uh, Stanley Tucci show, um, the cooking show that he does. Oh yes, yes, it's brilliant. I um, think my sister's a big fan of his. Yeah, he just the episode we I I just saw the episode where he was on the Amalfi Coast, and unfortunately yeah. he had very weird, unseasonable weather while he was there. But the yeah. Amalfi Coast just—I mean, I've never been there, but it just looks no. absolutely spectacular. Yeah, no, we, I am going to have to. We, we, I am going to have to go to Italy again. But uh, 
especially for the wine. I mean, I think that's what happened last time we went to Italy, virtually to Italy. So you've transported us away to the Amalfi Coast, I think. And we just get into that time of year where it's just lovely. Um, what, I mean, we're sitting here eating our cheese doodles, even though they're trying to force us to eat some fine food, probably, uh, with our yeah. lovely wine. Uh, what will we, di- we be discussing in this evening? Well, you know, it's so there's something that is I've been having some conversations with um, a, 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 a friend of mine who is the senior director of marketing um, at a, well, a, a relatively large software company. Mm-hmm. Um and it's new. It has not established any sort of content marketing program yet. Um, but he was tasked with doing this. He was tasked with sort of establishing this new content marketing strategy, right? Mm-hmm. And, and figuring out a way to roll it out to do things, right? You know, and what those things were, he was going to try and figure out by building his strategy. And so we were talking about it. And, and one of the things that was so frustrating for him was... He'd spent a few months actually, you know, building this strategy and then socializing it, right? Going around to all of the different groups with all these proposed changes through the company. (laughs) And in every meeting with these stakeholders, there was some new blockage, some new roadblock that came up, right? So in other words, he went to the sales team and he proposed this new flow of content and the sales team said, well, but yeah, but that's, that's fine. But what about this other problem that you aren't addressing here? And then he proposed the business case to the content marketing platform to the head of brand. And she said, well, I don't really think that senior leadership understands what content marketing is. So it doesn't really fit into our brand. So I don't really understand how this is going to work. Mm-hmm. And then he went to talk to product marketing about optimizing all their content. And they said, well, our content is already amazing and doesn't need any help. Thank you very much. And so he was really <laughs> batting zero for zero. I mean, he was just not having a good time at all. So his confidence and his presentation was really starting to suffer. Mm-hmm. So he changed his presentation from the feedback and then he went back and met with those people again and he got the same challenge, right? Different arguments, different, you know, yeah. result. Yeah. So we started looking at the presentation and it, the interesting thing was, wasn't the arguments, but how they were actually being made. And we started trying this experiment and it really, it really helped. And so I, I this is what is on my mind, which is, the arguments that he was making in this presentation were all about filling a gap that the team that he was pitching to didn't believe that they had. Ah, yes. So in other words, the sales team, they didn't feel like content flow is a problem. So coming in and saying, I'm going to fix it, didn't help. The head of brand marketing didn't see senior leadership having a lack of understanding as a priority. So what, quite frankly, why would I care? And the Mm -hmm. product marketing team didn't feel the content needed improvement. So get out of my office. Right. (laughs) And so, His whole presentation basically screamed, don't you get it? You've got a problem. I can fix it. And their reaction is, no, I don't. I don't have a problem. And so what we did was we sort of changed the approach, right? We, he did all the work. I just sort of said, (laughs) go do it. Um, And he said, what he did was he created a list of all those objections that he'd heard. And then he wrote down the positive futures that would come out of each one. Nice. In other words, what would it look like if this was fixed? Yeah. Uh, so in other words, he wrote down like this vision for what it would look like if all of these 
gaps were filled. Yeah. So he built a new business case based on that. And he went out um, and basically pitched the vision of what the new future would look like rather than the nice. problem that he was trying to fix. Nice. And it became personal to every one of those people. And it really got them interested. And so it just um, it, it, when we socialize things, many times what we do is we say, you know, there's a problem and we're the solution. And yeah. people are really reticent to change when you point out that what they've been doing is it's problematic. Right. Yeah. And instead, what we want to do is talk about something new that will help them succeed and give them that vision. And they'll give you back the gift of enthusiasm and commitment for that change. And, and that's it. So I, that's what's on my mind this week. Yeah, no, that's excellent. And I think... Um, and I've, it sounds like he was very fortunate as well to to get the opportunity to repitch because I think sometimes um, you you do something like that and that that just ruins it for all time, right? Is you, you sometimes don't get another go, do you? So I think it's good that he got to repitch and that they picked up on that. Are you, have you um, are you familiar with the Andy Raskin best sales pitch in the world format, um, which is something that I try. I've and, heard of it, but I'm not intimately familiar with it. Yeah. Now. Yeah. I try and I try and use this. And that is that you, you talk about the change in the world that's happening. Then you cho- talk about the winners and losers. If you don't adapt to that change, I'm going to, I'm going to forget some of these, but, and then, and then you, sh- then you talk about um, the, the gifts that no, the, the, uh, is it the ideal world or, or, or the gifts that you could give to that? And then you talk about the proof points of how you're going to how you're going to be able to do that. And I find that that process, when you apply it, I mean, I'm not sure that I'm, I've done it very much internally. But if you think about that structure, whenever you're trying to talk to somebody about change, you talk, you know, you're not then opening with you're doing it wrong. You're saying you as part of that presentation, you're presenting. Well, this is. That's right. <laughs> this is terrible. I'm terrible at this. <laughs> so maybe I should have done some preparation, but then I didn't know what you were going to talk about. So yeah, the third thing is you present the promised land, right? So th- so exactly what you were saying about what your chum did, which is present what this, what's the vision of what where you're going to go is going to be, and here's some br- proof about how I can take you there, basically. That sounds yeah. making sense. Yeah, no, I think it's and it's and it and and what I just what I find is is that you don't even need the proof points, right? Yeah, you just need to sell that this is a possible future, right? Based on this, um, and and it's just what it and it's new, right? That uh, there's a there's a wonderful and I can, I'll, I'll botch the quote for sure, but there's a wonderful Clayton. <laughs> well, Christian I've done a great job of that already. So, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it's some wonderful Clayton Christensen quote that talks about how change it, when it's when you present change, you present it as new, not mm-hmm. as change. Right. Yeah. Because change management almost never works. Right. But introducing new things can often work. Right. And. And so when you want to do something that is a change to the way that people have been doing what they're doing mm-hmm. and and trying to get them to do this new thing that you want to implement, that it's much more successful if you come in and say, here's a vision of the future that is new and everything you're doing now is fantastic. But if right. I can bring you this, then all of a sudden it's it's, you know, you'll get a lot more enthusiasm for the change that will be required in order to introduce the new thing. 
Right. Is that like kind of like ripping off the change band-aid almost? You just plunge straight into the new, whereas I think when when people approach change management, don't they approach it cautiously and step by step? And, and, and are you suggesting that actually, you know, just go for the new thing, present it as the new thing and, and, and start working towards that rather than worrying about that transition? It, well, it's, it, I mean, obviously, it depends on what we're doing, right? But, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, and, and what it is we're actually changing about how how we go yeah. about it. But I think the, you know, what I have found is that, especially in business processes, um, which is typically where we're making change management, right? Is in the, you know, it, I mean, and, and when Christensen talks about this, by the way, he talks about it in the sense of. When any new business, you know, basically when you when any new business or operational function comes online in a business, mm-hmm. it all starts with resources. Right. What he says is, you know, and I'm very much paraphrasing him here, but ba- but it says basically the first question we always ask is who, who what, what resources do we have? Right. What you know, what people do we have? What raw resources do we have? What skills do we have? What technologies and tools do we have in order to make this thing that we want to make happen, happen? Yeah. And what ends up happening then is we go great and we do it all and we figure out a way to do it. And we start developing a muscle, an institutional muscle in the way that we do it. And when we do it for long enough, it becomes, quote unquote, you know, and I'm using rock and roll quotes here, the mm-hmm. way it's done. Right. Yes. And, and, and in business, every business has this right. The yes. way it's done and it yes. being just about anything you can think of. This is yeah. the way it's done. When a new employee comes on. No, this is the way we do it. Right. Yeah. And this is the way it's always been done. And what <laughs> Christensen said is, is that after some time, that becomes what we call culture. Right. The yeah. corporate culture of a business yeah. Yeah. and those all of those rules and laws of the way things work, the physics of the business become what we call a cul- corporate culture. Yeah. So when you come in with something that says, I'm going to change the physics of the business, that's when you run into a lot of problems because yeah. people don't want to change the physics of the business because this is the way it's been done for so long. And so yeah. in introducing it. What we do is we say, no, 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 this is a new element or this is a new thing that we want to do. And so we start small, just like we did before. Right. In other words, we start with what resources do we have? What things do we have? And we build new things alongside the old things and see if they can become culture. And at some point we turn off the old culture. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think, and I, I, like you said, well, like you said, I think it depends on, on what, what change you're applying it to. But I love that idea of, of these things becoming the culture because that also implies the fact that they're almost unsaid, aren't they? You know, what? Yeah. That's the way we do it. You know, it's like, it's like the cultural norms of how your knives and forks are on the table. And that's just the way we always do it, you know? So, yeah, I think that's, that, that made a lot of sense. That was really good. Thank you very much for it. Um, and uh, I've just realized the time. We should uh, probably vacate our virtual bar and put our, our, our drinks down. Now the, the uh, cheese doodles are finished. Um, will I see you uh, in the bar next week, my friend? You will indeed. Oh, you know, I've forgotten to ask. Where do we find such fine thoughts <laughs> online? You can find them at my little hole <laughs> on the web, which is at contentadvisory.net. Um, and, uh, and of course, on the social channels, I'm Robert underscore Rose on Twitter. And you can find me on LinkedIn if you just do a quick search. 
Yeah, we've done this before, I think, so I should know this, yeah. shouldn't I? I so. <laughs> when you spin the dial on the interwebs. All right, well, thank you very much, mate, and I shall see you next week. I look Indeed. Cheers, buddy. Bye-bye. Thank you, Robert. So if you're bringing change, don't forget you're selling it. Not everybody's into it. And take Robert's advice. And maybe avoid selling it as change, but as something new. I will, of course, include all of Robert's links in the show notes. So that's a wrap on episode 58 of the Rockstar CMO Effing Marketing Podcast. Thanks again to Julie, Jeff, and Robert. Please check out their links in the show notes. Follow them. Take a look at their work. You can find the show notes on your favorite podcasting platform or at rockstarcmo.fm, where you can also find all our previous episodes. But most of all, thank you for dropping a dime into your podcasting jukebox, selecting our track and driving along with us. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please let me know what you think. Leave a review, subscribe, share or get in touch. You can find us at Rockstar CMO on Twitter and LinkedIn or just keep listening. I'm glad you're here. Next week, Jeff and I will continue to discuss privacy, the market's dilemma. I'm chatting to Alex Lowe, who works with and mentors startups and scale-ups, and recently joined friend of Rockstar CMO, Kate Bradley-Churnis, at Lately. And as you heard, Robert Rose will be back in our virtual Rockstar CMO bar. Until then, I've been your host, Ian Truscott, and I hope you'll again join us next week here at Rockstar CMO FM. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.